During the first half of the 19th century, Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin was a crossroads that attracted men and women of all backgrounds. Among them were five black women who represented a variety of experiences. Although the Northwest Ordinance of 1787 outlawed slavery in the areas that would become Wisconsin and several other states, a patchwork of laws enabled white slaveholders to retain possession of some blacks. Historian Mary Elise Antoine will tell us about the degrees of servitude that existed in Wisconsin and the efforts that some black women took to secure their freedom. It's University of the Air and it's next here on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio. The Northwest Ordinance of 1787 made slavery illegal in the territory that would become Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, and part of Minnesota. But the rights of many black individuals were denied by white enslavers who continued to hold them captive in the territory well into the 19th century. We're going to follow the lives of several of those people whose lives intersected in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. I'm Norman Gilliland. This is University of the Air. My guest is Mary Elise Antoine, author of Enslaved, Indentured, Free, Five Black Women on the Upper Mississippi, 1800 to 1850, published in 2022 by the Wisconsin Historical Society Press. Welcome to University of the Air. Thank you so very much for inviting me. And right from the get-go, things get complicated, don't they? Because we're talking about this ordinance in 1787 covering a vast territory, multiple states by today's standards, and the laws already are a patchwork, and, and so are the people that these laws are trying to cover. Yes, when the uh, Northwest Territory was established, and interestingly enough, Thomas Jefferson helped to write the ordinance, um, the idea was to not allow the enslavement of human beings within the territory. And um, Article 6 states that very succinctly. Well, a lot of the people who were coming to move into the territory were from southern states. They had enslaved people uh, within their households for generations, possibly, and so when they're moving from uh, an area where slavery was legal, for lack of a better uh, termination, they brought an enslaved individual with them, and yet slavery wasn't allowed. So they had to figure out ways around it, and I uh, address some of that in my book. And what uh, inspired you to uh, to write this book and how did you discover these five women who fall into these three different categories, enslaved, indentured, and free? Well, I was born and raised in Prairie du Chien, grew up there, uh, went away to school to work for a while, and then ended back in Prairie du Chien. And when you live in a small community, there are traditional stories that are always handed down and you know, one of the traditional stories was about Mary Ann's granddaughter who survived um, being attacked during the Winnebago War of 1827. Well, her story leads to her grandmother, who was also well-known in the community, and the grandmother was Mary Ann. So Mary Ann's basic story was well-known as something I grew up with. 
Um, and then, because of the research I had done on other topics uh, pertaining to Prairie du Chien and the Upper Mississippi, I was asked to assist a professor at uh, the University of Iowa who was doing research on Dred and Harriet Scott. And she introduced me to these uh, documents that officers stationed at a military post had to file every month so they could be paid. And uh, these pay vouchers still exist. And as officers, depending upon your rank, you could uh, have one or two servants within your household. And so a lot of the officers did have servants, but many of these servants uh, were not there of their own free will. And some of them, uh, when you requested the pay for a servant, you had to give the person's name, a physical description as to their height, the color of their hair, the color of their eyes, and then any other comments you wanted to make. Well, quite often, um, the comments that were made made you realize that the person was black. And some of the officers just bluntly wrote down that the person was a slave or my slave. So all of a sudden, this information comes out about these enslaved people that are claimed by officers who are stationed at Fort Crawford in Prairie du Chien or Fort Snelling. Uh, that is now, you know, part of St. Paul. And I thought, this is right in my neighborhood. Now, wait a minute. I got a history degree. Um, I learned about free states and slave states. Wisconsin's a free state. So that piqued my interest. And then I uh, worked for the local museum in Prairie du Chien, and I received a request from a teacher uh, that teaches at Marquette University High School, and he teaches uh, U.S. Uh, history pertaining to the Civil War and uh, Reconstruction. But he wanted his children to become very involved in this part of history as it related to Wisconsin. And uh, one of the things that he brought up is that, well, you know, there were enslaved people in Wisconsin. And, of course, the kids go, oh, there were no such thing. So he got involved with an organization that's called the Slave Dwelling Project, and he would take his students on field trips to sleep where enslaved people had slept. And they started, you know, in Virginia or, or areas of the South. Well, he contacted me and he said, well, I'm bringing my students and they're going to sleep uh, in places in Wisconsin where there were enslaved people, and could they come and sleep in the Fort Crawford Hospital? And I said, well, yeah, of course. You know. <laughs> and um, they, the students had slept at Governor Dodge's uh, house prior to that and then came to Fort Crawford. So all of this interest, you know, and this is over several years, um, if you do research in history, you don't decide, well, I'm going to research this topic and, you know, go into it, and a year later there's a manuscript. Um, research builds up over time. It and, seems never to end, actually. Well, it really never does. And so there, there was a buildup on this, and um, then I really started focusing in on my research. Again, growing up in Prairie du Chien, um, one knew about Patsy. 
uh, because she was enslaved by the U.S. Indian agent that was stationed at Prairie du Chien, and his name was Joseph Street. He was a very prolific writer, and his grandchildren uh, wrote a lot of memories. So, again, there's information out there, and it just started coming together. And I thought, you know, here's five women who really led very interesting lives. And after you read about the women, you really appreciate their fortitude, their strength, and even though there's no image of them, uh, as far as we can determine, they could not write, but their stories needed to be told, and so that's what I've done. Well, you've started with Mary Ann, as long as you mentioned her, and, and she's the chronologically the first of them. What's right. her story? Mary Ann was free. Um, her early history is very difficult to determine, and really sort of the, the first indication of her heritage is uh, a Catholic priest's um, recording of her marriage that occurred at Prairie du Chien. And it says that uh, she is Mary Ann, that she's a woman of color, um, that her mother's name was Mary Ann and born in New Orleans. Of course, the question is, was Marianne the mother born in New Orleans or Marianne the daughter born a, in, in New Orleans? Do we have a last name? Yes. Her last name uh, was LaBouche, and she always kept that name. She, she was married three times, um, and, but she was always known as Marianne LaBouche. And when would this have been that she was born? Sometime in the 1780s. Um, again, it, it's very difficult to determine. Um, there's this is, but this is New Orleans. This is uh, French New Orleans. This is French by New now. Orleans. So, well, Napoleonic Code, but certainly different from the laws that would have applied once New Orleans became American in 1803. Right. It gets complicated there, doesn't it? It does get complicated there because you have New Orleans, it's French, and then it's Spanish, and <laughs> then it's French, and then it's Spanish, and, you know, finally it's uh, U.S. territory. But interestingly enough, and even to this day in the state of Louisiana, Napoleonic Code uh, is the basis of their legal system. And uh, French Napoleonic Code is far more liberal uh, on women's rights than British law, and United States law is based on British law. So Marianne, because she was born under Napoleonic Code, and, it, and the Spanish accepted uh, that pretty much, she maintained her identity throughout her life as Marianne LaBouche. And um, we don't know much about her first husband, uh, Marianne came to live in what was called the Illinois country, and the Illinois country is southern Illinois, but it was also sort of across the river in St. Louis and uh, St. Genevieve. Um, it was the country of the Illini Native Nation, okay? 
So that's where Illinois comes from. Um, So we don't know much about her first husband, but they lived in the Illinois country. Her second husband is also from the Illinois country, uh, from the Kaskaskia, Cahokia uh, region. And he had uh, contacts up in Prairie du Chien. And at one point, um, there were people from the Illinois country that were moving up the Mississippi River to Prairie du Chien. And so her uh, second husband, Claude, uh, moves up to Prairie du Chien and um, brings Marianne uh, to Prairie du Chien. And when French-speaking people first settled at Prairie du Chien, they just randomly ex- you know, said, well, I'll take this piece of the prairie for my house lot or for my farm lot. And that's what Claude did. He acquired two pieces of property, and then he gave one to Marianne. So she owned uh, property besides that. And then when Claude died, she married a third time. And um, so she was the ownership of property, uh, the mother of 12 children, um, and very well known on the prairie because she knew how to help people who were sick, who were ill. Um, There was even a a comment made that she was far better than the post-surgeon that was at Fort Crawford. I can imagine given some of the uh, early 19th century medical techniques. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So um, that's sort of Mary Ann's background. And um, as I get into the story in the books, you will learn that there are contacts between Mary Ann's children and um, several of the other women that are part of my story. So these women come from five different geographical areas, different backgrounds, but they all come together at Prairie du Chien, and they all end up knowing each other at Prairie du Chien. Do you have a sense uh, in these years, uh, we'll say roughly the first half of the 19th century, what would have been the black population of Prairie du Chien? What was the white population for that matter? The total population in 1820, excluding anybody at the military post, was about 350 people. And that population, depending upon when they took the census record, would fluctuate because so many of the men uh, were engaged in the, the fur trade. And so during the trading season, which would be fall through winter, they might not be at the prairie they would be up north at one of the wintering places. So I'm not sure when the 1820 census was taken. So it's about 350. As to the number of black people, there was Mary Ann was considered uh, black, as were her children. Um, And then there were some other black people at Prairie du Chien. Um, According to the 1820 census, they were all free, but they did live in other people's households, so they were in some sort of serving capacity. 1820 is an interesting year, isn't it, in terms of uh, slave law in this country? Definitely. That's the Missouri Compromise. Mm-hmm. Which uh, which also made things complicated. Marianne married three white husbands? Yes, they, and- they were white. Uh, and they were all French, originally of French Canada. Um, and what do we know about then her children and, and 
who they would have married in Prairie de Chine. You know, Marianne, of course, she did come from a French background if she would have come from, you know, New Orleans or anything like that. Um, so she would have spoken French. And her three husbands, uh, two of them, not too sure how they came to the Illinois country, if they were born there or born someplace else. But her third husband was born in French-speaking Canada. So French was the language within their household, and it was probably very much the language of Prairie du Chien. And um, so her children, when they marry, all marry other French Canadians. The the girls marry French Canadian men, and the boys or young men marry French Canadian women. So, but they're all white. Yeah. So, so the black element is getting diluted over the right. generations uh, succeeding Marianne. Right. She. So Marianne then was free her whole life. Yes. Let's look at. Uh, these other four women who have different statuses in their lives, although those uh, statuses may have changed, and we'll find out about that and them right after this. You're listening to University of the Air. I'm Norman Gilliland, back with my guest, Mary Antoine, who has written the book Enslaved, Indentured, Free, Five Black Women in the Upper Mississippi, 1800 to 1850, published in 2022, by the Wisconsin Historical Society Press. And we've heard about Mary Ann, a remarkable figure in her own right, who was a free black throughout her life and uh, born in New Orleans and came north to Prairie de Chine, where she became something of a celebrity. By dint of all of the assistance he, she rendered to others, but there, there's this one status. So we talk about white. We talk about free. But there's this one status that's kind of in between and, and uh, has applied over the years to people of all races, and that's indentured. What exactly did that mean, and how did it apply to the, the next uh, women that you have in mind? Well, indentured means, in a general sense, that you agree to do something, uh, usually work or provide your labor to someone for a specific time period. And in that time period, either the person to whom you're indenturing your labor may teach you a trade. So, you know, young men could indenture themselves, say, to a blacksmith for seven years, and then at the end, they know how to be a blacksmith. Um, or you indentured yourself to somebody else to work for them, and they would maybe pay you something at the end of your indentureship. Or a lot of the early colonists who couldn't afford the passage uh, from Europe to North America would indenture themselves to work for somebody in return for payment for their passage. And then Always a time period was set, and at the end of the time period, um, you probably got a small remuneration, but you were free then to, you know, practice your trade, uh, marry, go buy some land and be your own farmer or whatever. In the sense that um, I use it in my book, it was a way to get around the law uh, that no... uh, Slavery was allowed in the Northwest Territory. 
So Northwest Territory is formed, um, and within the formation document is a way where a part of a territory can become a state. And so the first part of the territory to become a state is Ohio. And in their constitution, it says there will be no slavery in Ohio. Well, the rest of the territory, uh, a lot of it becomes part of what's now called Indiana Territory, and that included Indiana and Illinois, even up to Prairie du Chien. Prairie du Chien at one time was part of Indiana Territory. And a lot of the people who already were living in that territory did have enslaved people in their household. Well, the new territory said, well, you can't have slavery, but if you bring uh, a person into the territory and uh, that person is enslaved, you have to go to the clerk, county clerk, clerk of court, uh, and have that person sign an indenture. Actually change their status. And what's, what's the upshot of that, though? Because if they sign this indenture, if they're indentured, then technically at some point they're free. Technically, yes. But I suppose as a slave owner trying to pass your slave into uh, free territory, you can say, well, sure, it's as soon as they pay off what they owe me and that could go on forever. It's like the old uh, system of peonage, I suppose. Could You know, you never get out of debt to the company store. Is that, was that how it worked? Um, most of the documents that I've read, um, and this goes beyond the two women that I talk about who had to sign uh, indentures, most of the indentures said so-and-so, a free person of color, willingly signs this indenture to work for so-and-so for a certain number of years. Um, so because they were signing the indenture in Northwest Territory, they were considered free because there was no slavery allowed. But in the indenture, they're turning around and signing away the fact that they will work for this person who co-signs the indenture. and uh, Which they may or may not have been able to actually read. Oh, uh, the indentures I've read are signed by an X, okay? Um, and in the case of uh, the two indentured women that I talk about, um, Patsy and Mariah, Mariah had to sign an indenture for uh, 25 years, and um, Patsy signed one that was close to 60 years. So really slavery. Right. You're indentured for life. <laughs> where that was not the meaning of the indenture. So um, Mariah was born in Maryland uh, into slavery, and then she was brought into the Northwest Territory by John W. Johnson. And once she's brought into Northwest Territory, he has her sign this indenture. And um, then Johnson is appointed the U.S. Fur Factor, United States Fur Factor, uh, and to be stationed at Prairie du Chien. So he brings uh, Mariah and a young boy by the name of Henry with him to Prairie du Chien. Both Mariah and Henry have signed indentures, and he immediately goes to the Crawford County Court in Prairie du Chien and files these indentures with them uh, in Crawford County. 
And so that's where their intentions are recorded. Um, and again, you know, both of them are to work for Johnson for innumerable years. Um, the other woman I talk about who was indentured is Patsy. Um, as a young girl, she was born in Kentucky, and she was given to her enslaver's daughter as a present. And uh, her daughter marries uh, Joseph Street, and they are now in Indiana Territory, and they're going to move to southern Illinois. And uh, southern Illinois, which has now been created into Illinois Territory, has exactly the same <clears throat> requirement, that if you bring an enslaved person into Illinois Territory within 30 days, they have to be taken to the clerk of court and sign an indenture. So these are still territories, but you mentioned Ohio, which became a state in 1803. What kind of law did they have regarding a slave brought into Ohio? Did they have the indenture clause? No, they they were perfectly straightforward. There is no slavery in Ohio, period. But um, Indiana – well, the, the governor of Indiana Territory was William Henry Harrison. Oh, he was n- no stranger to slavery. No. And um, the uh, lieutenant governor was uh, Thomas Posey, who is – who's – how do I explain this without reading the book? Um, his daughter was Eliza, who had Patsy. Was So you have a governor and a lieutenant governor, both of whom – you know, are familiar with slavery. Um, so when Illinois Territory is formed from Indiana Territory, they put the same requirement in that the person has to take their servant um, to a clerk of court. And so that's what happens with Patsy. And we have her indenture also. It's it's recorded. Um, and she agrees to, as a free woman of color, uh, work for uh, Joseph Street, and um, her indenture is very interesting because there's all these morality cause clauses in there. Whose morality? Hers or? Yes, <laughs> she has to behave in a certain manner and every and be you know obedient unto. Be and if there are any violations of this, years can be added to her indenture. Oh, a little bit like a prison sentence. Then. Yeah, um, right. Good behavior. Uh, and at the same time, a man whose uh, name is London signs an indenture to work with Joseph Street. And he his also has uh, morality stipulations in it too. So Joseph Street is living in southern Illinois um, and then gets the job as the U.S. Indian agent to be stationed at Prairie du Chien. And so he brings um, Patsy and London with him to Prairie du Chien. And um, in fact, Patsy ends up signing a second indenture to where she willingly goes to Prairie du Chien and she will work for Mrs. Street, uh, fulfilling her first engagement with Joseph Street. So both Mariah and Patsy come to Prairie du Chien as indentured servants. And how did their fortunes fall once they get to Prairie du Chien? I think Mariah's was probably 
the best. She ends up becoming a very good friend of one of Marianne's daughters, Helene. And Helene, of course, is free. She marries a man who is a uh, blacksmith, and they own um, land in what was called the main village of Prairie du Chien. And the U.S. Fur Factory is in the main village, and so they live within a few hundred feet of one another, and this friendship does arise. And I think Mariah sees that, oh my word, they're black women my age that are free. And so when um, John Johnson decides to leave Prairie du Chien, uh, Mariah purchases her freedom. Um, it cost her a little over $200 to become free, but she stays at Prairie du Chien. She acquires land. Uh, she farms. And uh, in time, she marries, and they take other young black boys into their home to, you know, raise them. She never has any children of her own. Uh, raise them, and, and they help with farming. Did they have to have documents then, first of all, that said they had paid off the indenture, but also just to say that they are free blacks? So, I mean, we're getting to the point, I'm guessing, where the law was, uh, we get into the Fugitive Slave, Slave Act, law. for example, in 1850, you know, Dred Scott and all of that, that uh, theoretically a Southerner could, uh, from a slave-owning state could come north, claim a black person as a slave, and there would be no remedy unless that person had some kind of documentation? I don't know whether uh, Mariah received that documentation. Um, I do know that she had her freedom recorded at the Crawford County Courthouse in Prairie du Chien. And it says right in there that uh, she purchased her freedom and how much she purchased it for. Whether Johnson gave her, you know, a letter to that effect, I have no idea. So how long was she actually indentured? How long, in other words, did it take her to pay off her freedom? She had to buy out 11 years of her indenture. And so I assumed Johnson figured that 200 and so many dollars was worth what she was worth for 11 years of not working for him. 200 bucks, even by, uh, what, 1830, oh, okay. 1840 standards? That was a sizable amount. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you say that uh, Patsy did not fare so well? No, Patsy um, remained indentured uh, to the Street family until both Joseph and his wife died. And it's, again, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a convoluted story. Um, Patsy had a, a husband. I don't have a marriage record, but she, they married because she, is, she takes his last name. So she becomes Patsy Triplett. And they have four sons. And um, one of the, the young boys, Henry, at the age of four, Joseph Street's daughter marries one of the officers stationed at Fort Crawford. And they give, Joseph gives Henry 
to uh, Lieutenant and Mrs. Wilson as a wedding present at the age of four. Hopefully he got to live with his mother during this time. Um, But when uh, Lieutenant Wilson is moved from Fort Crawford, I assume, you know, Henry went with him. Uh, In time, the whole family reunites. But um, so Joseph Street is moved from Prairie du Chien down to Rock Island. And then in time, he's moved to the new Indian agency over on the Des Moines River, which is called Agency. To this day, that's the name of the community. And so Patsy and her children follow. They have to follow. And so they live at the U.S. Indian Agency uh, in Agency, Iowa. And uh, while there, Joseph Street dies, but Mrs. Street is still alive, so Patsy is still indentured to her. Well, when she dies, by this time they are in Iowa. Iowa is real close to statehood. Um, And, you know, so Wisconsin is also close to statehood. This is uh, 1843. So the sons must think that the better way to do is to give Patsy and her children their freedom, and they do, Um, and they give her a piece of land. So Patsy and her children live at Agency, Iowa, for a while, and then in time move down to Keokuk, where there is a very large uh, free black population. When um, Wisconsin, let's say, becomes a state in 1848, Iowa, I think, is 1846, Mm -hmm. so they are changing their status from territorial to state, right? do each of those two states, like Ohio, then outlaw slavery in their constitutions? Wisconsin does outlaw slavery in its constitution. Um, And in its constitution, it even says that a person cannot bring another person into uh, the the territory of the state as enslaved. and so, or what? Or they will be prosecuted. Oh, okay. The, well, they don't lose the slave, but they will be prosecuted. They will be prosecuted, and um, the the only problem with the Wisconsin Constitution is it doesn't deal with the issue of people who are in the territory who are enslaved. How do they gain their freedom? Uh, Wisconsin's territorial constitution doesn't discuss that, but that could be because Wisconsin's first territorial governor was Henry Dodge, who had enslaved people working for him. Did he? Yes. Um, Did he come from out of state? Where did he get these slaves? He came from Missouri. Oh, which which was part of that Missouri Compromise. Right. Slave state and the swap for Maine. Right. So he he brought um, enslaved people up with him to work um, at his smelter, his lead smelter in, well... Mineral Point. Mineral or, Point, Dodgeville yeah. area, yeah. yeah. Um, when Iowa uh, established itself, it outlawed slavery, but it also said that no black people could move into the state, um, and they also had... Uh, no black people, period, could move into Iowa? They didn't want, they didn't want to deal with the issue. I'll probably get in trouble now for saying that. Um, but um, 
they also had what was called a black code so that if you were in Iowa, you had to have a sponsor and um, you were had to maintain a certain moral code. Would they, I don't know if there are any records of them actually apprehending ostensibly free blacks in Iowa, but if they did under this law that you're describing, Mary, they would have, what, just uh, escorted them to the border back to Missouri or someplace yeah, like that? Yeah, escorted them someplace else. And in fact, um, Patsy's uh, eldest son was a free person, um, and he went to work in a very small community in Iowa. He had a trade, and some of the residents of Iowa uh, took him to court and said, he shouldn't be free. He should be out of here. And the judge ruled he has lived in this territory and state longer than you have. He has the rights to live here. And that's another thing that uh, that gets quite interesting, doesn't it? Uh, the whole um, status of slaves in terms of their legal rights. I was surprised some years ago to to find that a slave woman – young woman in Missouri could actually sue her master, not necessarily for her freedom even, but for for some wrongs that he had committed. Missouri had an interesting set of laws for being a slave state. Um, In the beginning, there were some freedoms, or not freedoms, I'll take that back, that's the wrong word, at least some legal recourse um, if, if you were enslaved. And um, this started with French law and then Spanish law. And then when Missouri became a territory, they sort of incorporated a couple of these aspects um, into their laws. And one of them was if you could prove that you should be free, you can file a freedom suit in um, St. Louis court. And if you had lived in a free territory before – and then been brought to Missouri, if your mother had been free, or um, if somebody gave you freedom papers, but they hadn't given you their freedom papers, or if you had freedom papers and somebody tried to you know, take away your freedom. So there were various reasons as to why you could file a freedom suit. And two of the young women that are in my book, Patsy, or excuse me, Courtney and Rachel, both filed freedom suits. They were both enslaved by an officer that was stationed uh, at first Fort Snelling and then at Fort Crawford in Prairie du Chien. And um, in time, both Courtney and Rachel were taken by their enslaver down to St. Louis and sold. Um, And nobody knows quite how anybody finds this out, but there was a tremendous uh, network of information among black people in St. Louis because you had free blacks and enslaved blacks. And both uh, first Rachel and then Courtney, when they are brought down to St. Louis, file suits to open a freedom suit. They file a petition to open a freedom suit. And their argument in both cases is that they had lived in a territory where slavery was not legal. 
in both um, Fort Crawford and Fort Snelling were part of Wisconsin Territory where uh, slavery was not legal as they were both part of Northwest Territory where slavery wasn't legal. So um, you could file a freedom suit, and so uh, Rachel did. It took a long time uh, for that suit uh, to be decided, and in the interim, Courtney filed a suit for her freedom, again, based upon her residency up in Prairie du Chien. And um, initially, uh, Rachel lost her freedom suit, said no, she couldn't be free because she was held by an officer, and officers really weren't residents. They were just in transit. Transitory, and so it would be hard to apply a particular state law to somebody who was moving through the area. Yeah, officers were ordered to wherever they were. They were allowed to bring their personal property. Um, An enslaved person was their personal property. It got really interesting. I know uh, a little bit of a sideline, but technically the last U.S. president to own a slave was U.S. Grant because his wife Julia had a slave nominally at least, that uh, they moved around with. And, of course, he, being in the military, would have been uh, not covered by these state laws. Right. And that was the argument um, that uh, the officer that that had Rachel was just there under order. And so the, the court agreed with the officer's argument. Well, uh, Rachel had a, a young man as her attorney, and he filed an appeal to the next level of the court and said um, that Rachel should have her freedom because she'd lived in the Northwest Territory. She lived in Wisconsin, by now, Wisconsin Territory. Prior to that, it had been Michigan Territory, and Michigan Territory did not allow um, slavery in its territory either. And um, the appellate court agreed, and they said an argument that the officer can bring his personal property with him is not a valid argument. He did not have to bring an enslaved person with him. His orders did not tell him he had to bring an enslaved person. That was his choice. Did that work? It worked. (laughs) And so Rachel gained her freedom, and Courtney's argument was exactly the same as Rachel's, so they stayed her decision until court, uh, Rachel's decision had been made, and based upon Rachel's decision, Courtney also gained her freedom. Rachel disappears. We, no one has any ideas to when, where she went. Courtney, though, goes back to Prairie du Chien because she had formed a friendship with Marianne's daughter, Helene, and she'd formed a friendship with Mariah, who had purchased her freedom. And so they literally all became neighbors in the main village of Prairie du Chien. We'll have further thoughts on the whole phenomenon of slavery in free territory, Wisconsin in particular, when we return in a moment. This is University of the Air. I'm Norman Gilliland, back with my guest, Mary Elise Antoine, who is the author of Enslaved Indentured Free, Five Black Women on the Upper Mississippi, 1800-1850, published in 2022 by the Wisconsin Historical Society Press. And we've been following the cases of these five black women who fall into those three categories of 
free and enslaved and indentured. And uh, things change uh, very quickly, don't they, in terms of the laws as these territories become states and as the whole country addresses the slavery issue and it becomes more contentious. How does all that affect Wisconsin and slavery? Yeah, as uh, the years progress and, and more territories are added to the United States, the question always is, are these free territories or are they uh, slave uh, territories? And the whole issue of slavery becomes more and more and more contentious. So Missouri heightens its laws um, to where people can still file freedom suits, but they're looked at much more carefully, much more narrowly um, as to whether the person should gain their freedom or not. Then the United States itself has to deal with this whole issue of uh, enslaved people who are trying to escape their their situation and come into a uh, free state or a free territory, and then they, the Congress, U.S. Congress, passes the uh, the Fugitive Slave Law, which, if anybody wants to escape slavery. They're not even safe in a free state. Got to get to Canada. You have to get to Canada. And, um, you know, some enslaved people had already been trying to go to Canada just bypassing the northern part of the United States. But with the Fugitive Slave Act, um, the whole Underground Railroad concept becomes much more active and uh, much more pervasive. And um, Wisconsin becomes uh, quite involved in... um, being a route to Canada, Um, not so much going all the way north, but getting yourself into the Great Lakes, which would then allow you to get into Canada uh, much more easily. Some of those routes of the Underground Railroad were surprisingly indirect, and I don't know if that was in order to uh, just avoid detection that much more effectively or if there were other kind of considerations. But it's not like you go straight up through Wisconsin. You might go, what, into like as far as Waukesha or something, then curve back down into Illinois and then back up through Michigan. Right. I mean, the idea, the closest area in in the Midwest to get into Canada was across from Detroit. Um, And so, and there were a lot of people in Detroit who were willing to help. Um, so that was one of the routes. Like in Wisconsin, you didn't want to go through Wisconsin and the UP and, and uh, Lake Superior and everything like that. You preferred uh, the Lake Michigan route. Do you have a sense – you mentioned these freedom suits. Do you have a sense of who actually represented the slaves or – gave them the idea of initiating these suits, which presumably they wouldn't really have known about otherwise. No. I, For instance, neither Rachel nor Courtney, I would have thought, would have known about um, the ability to file a freedom suit down in St. Louis. So there had to be a network of information among the black people in St. Louis. And sympathetic whites? <sighs> haven't found that to be. Have honest. you not? No. Um, uh, but Missouri did honor its law. 
um, if a black person wanted to file a freedom suit, all they had to do is prove the fact that they were indigent. Well, that was very easy. They, they, they didn't own property. And then the court would turn around and assign a lawyer to represent them. Or sometimes, and again, it's so undocumented, sometimes the uh, person who wanted to file a freedom suit went to a lawyer first. Um, so there are all the legal papers. They still exist um, in, in Missouri in the circuit court records. And so we know exactly who the lawyers were that represented the enslaved person and who represented the enslaver. We know exactly who the, the circuit court justices were and the appellate court justices were. And um, interestingly, Sometimes these lawyers would represent an enslaved person, and sometimes they'd represent the enslaver. And that's very true in, in both Courtney and Rachel's uh, case. Um, so I don't know what that says, but um, – and, and their expenses were paid for by the state of Missouri. So the enslaved person did not have to pay uh, for – the uh, the legal fees. That's that's a perhaps surprisingly liberal law for a well, state that allows slavery. Yeah, and but what a lot of the enslaved people did is they would file. Um, also, besides filing the you know uh, a petition to gain their slavery or their freedom, they would also file a complaint against the enslaver that they had physically hurt them, abused them. Uh, restrained them, and then put a dollar amount on for damages. If the person won their freedom suit, they would get this money. In addition to the freedom, they would they would yeah. actually get a uh, well, punitive uh, award. Hopefully, the enslaver would therefore pay the damages. If they, uh, if he did not or she did not, I don't know if the enslaved person had any recourse. Do you have a sense, uh, Mary, of how many of these freedom suits were filed in Wisconsin? Oh, a mere – there were no freedom suits filed in Wisconsin. It was by Missouri law, so you had to file them in Missouri. Now, other states gave black people the ability to file freedom suits, including some of the southern states. But um, in the Midwest, only Missouri was the one that gave uh, enslaved people the ability to file freedom suits. Didn't need it in Wisconsin. You're not supposed to have slavery in Wisconsin. Why do you need it? And that was an interesting uh, irony, I suppose. It seems inevitable that you mentioned that these uh, soldiers bringing slaves into Wisconsin, which uh, with as property, right? some of them wound up actually uh, fighting for the Union and therefore – fighting for the demise of slavery. Right. Some of the officers ended up fighting for the Confederate States, but the officer that requested someone purchase uh, Rachel for him ended up fighting for the Union during the Civil War. He was a recruiting agent out of uh, Michigan. and so. Are you aware of any descendants of these five women you've written about? Oh, yes. Um, Mariah married and had no children, so there are no descendants. And as I said, Rachel disappears, so we couldn't follow her. But there are descendants of Marianne and Patsy 
and uh, Courtney. And I've been in contact with several of them. In fact, when we did the book release at Prairie du Chien, uh, we had a reception for descendants of those three women. Um, so, yeah, they have. And they know their uh, ancestors' story very well. Any of them still living in the uh, Prairie du Chien area? A lot of Marianne's descendants live in uh, Prairie du Chien, Crawford County, Wisconsin. Well, there's a lot of history when you look out the window, isn't there? You just never know who who knows what about uh, the the story of where you live. That That is true. Every community has all of these wonderful small histories that are very, very important to the whole story. Well, thanks for sharing the story of uh, these five individuals, enslaved, indentured, and free black women who lived in the area of Prairie du Chien in the first half of the 19th century. The name of the book, Enslaved, Indentured, Free, and the author, Marie Elise Antoine, has been my guest for University of the Year. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Norman Gilliland. I hope you'll join me next time around for University of the Air.